And now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, New Testament reading. Our sermon text this morning will hone in on verses 15 to 20, but I'd like us to read verses 13 to 23 for its broader context. Here Jesus speaks of the great perils that attend discipleship as we walk the narrow path. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. But where are false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is God's word. Let's go before the Lord and pray that he helps us to understand it. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do pray that as we have gathered as the church, that we would hear our Savior speak from heaven through the ministry of his holy and inerrant word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think many of us are familiar with uh, the old fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, The story of uh, the little girl who has a nice little red coat and wants to go visit her grandma. She asks her mother if she could go visit her grandma, and she says, yes, but be careful because there are dangers along the way. And Little Red Riding Hood decides to go over the hill and through the woods to Grandmother's house, and she makes it to Grandmother's house, uh, not recognizing that the big bad wolf has already shown up to the house and has eaten her grandmother and is now dressed as her grandmother, seeking to devour Little Red Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood is somewhat naive. Perhaps her grandmother, it's probably not a a good testimony to her grandmother's looks if she can't tell the difference between her grandmother and a wolf. And yet she looks at her grandmother, that wolf, or what she thinks is her grandmother, dressed uh, in her nightgown and cap, says, my grandmother, what big eyes you have. Oh, all there to see you more clearly, my dear. Well, grandmother, what big uh, teeth you have. And the list goes on and on. And of course, Little Red Riding Hood, naive as she is, does not recognize the danger that she is in until it is too late. Naive Little Red Riding Hood is devoured by the wolf and destroyed. 
here at the end of our Savior's sermon, right? The greatest sermon that was ever preached. The, the sermon that Jesus goes throughout the countryside preaching, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, concludes his sermon with a series of warnings about the nature of Christian discipleship. Not only is it a narrow road that few walk upon, but that that narrow road is now beset with dangers along the way. One of those dangers being predators along the path. Wolves hiding in plain sight, not simply wolves from without. Uh, but as you have, uh, as we read earlier, as Peter himself warns, wolves that arise from within. How is it that we are to discern a true teacher from a false teacher before it is too late. It is a very serious concern. It is a warning that our Savior gives. It is a warning that is found in nearly every single book of the New Testament to beware of false teachers. I'm not saying that this morning for us to go on a witch hunt, uh, for us to become immediately suspicious of everyone around us, but at the same time, it is a somber warning that our Savior gives to us, and one that we must pay careful attention to, as he himself begins by saying, pay careful attention to this, right? Beware of the false prophets and teachers. I'd like us to divide this passage into two particular parts. You notice how Jesus himself gives uh, the same warning twice, or the same, I guess, instruction twice. You see it in uh, uh, verse 16, and again in verse 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. It's a repeated refrain Jesus gives in this section, and I think that is what helps us divide uh, this passage accordingly. First, we'll consider the matter of hidden wolves in verses 15 and 16. And then secondly, we'll consider the matter of rotten fruit in verses, the second half of verse 16 uh, through verse 20. So hidden wolves and rotten fruit. Jesus begins by giving us this particular warning to beware of false prophets. I think the immediate question we have to ask is, why is he giving us this warning? Well, Jesus would not be giving us this warning if it was not a real threat that the church faced. Part of the difficulty, of course, is that these particular wolves are hard to spot. They look no different on the outside than the rest of the flock. I think it'd be one thing if we, you know, uh, an actual gray wolf walked in uh, down this aisle, we would all look right away and say, that's a wolf, maybe I should flee. I remember, I guess it was during the pandemic about two years ago, it was springtime, we had the doors wide open, and um, there was a, a, a bobcat that started making its way towards this direction, and I, I guess the doors were open, and of course, I from the pulpit said, there's a bobcat coming this way, and everybody thought I was speaking in a parable. <laughs> I was speaking quite literally, and, because I'm the only one who's able to see it. It's easy to recognize a bobcat or a wolf when it's coming this way, but what do you do if the wolf is hiding in plain sight? You see that Jesus has already been getting at this throughout this particular sermon as the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount is warning against the dangers of hypocrisy. Sure enough, who are the great examples in Jesus' sermon of those who are acting like the hypocrites? It is the religious leadership of Jesus' own day. 
Wolves hiding in plain sight. Everything looks great on the outside. Here are men who are praying. Here are men who are fasting. Here are men who are giving alms. And yet it is all done for theatrical purposes. All for the intent of devouring the sheep in their midst. You you read the book of Ezekiel, and it's a a major problem that the prophet Ezekiel has to contend with as uh, the religious leadership of Israel in Ezekiel's day Uh, whom he refers to as false shepherds, are devouring the sheep rather than feeding and protecting them. And of course, we hear uh, the great words from the Lord God Almighty, who in the face of such uh, uh, predatory behavior among these false shepherds, the Lord himself condemns them and says, I myself will be the good shepherd. I will come and I will feed the flock we hear our Savior speak elsewhere in John's gospel. When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he is echoing the words of God himself because he is himself the incarnate son of God who comes to defend his sheep and model for us what true teaching and what true pastoral care entails. We find the dangers of hypocrisy are not simply a matter of personal piety as if our own hypocrisy uh, will uh, only wreak havoc upon ourselves and nobody else. Jesus warns that those who are in leadership, who practice such hypocritical behaviors, are to uh, be avoided at all cost. As hypocrites in leadership will lead the flock along that same destructive path. You will read uh, later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will make this really stunning statement that it is the blind, speaking of the leadership of his own day, these blind guides who are leading the blind, and who is it that falls into the ditch? It's not just the leadership. Both fall into the ditch. Even the naive who are led astray. It is of critical importance that the church Uh, uh, recognize the true from the false, the true from the counterfeit. It is a perennial problem that plagues the church. It is a moment, as the New Testament warns us, of what we might call the great eschatological crisis of the church in the period between the first and second advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. The intensification of false teaching Second Peter 2, false teachers will arise seeking your destruction. Nearly every New Testament book warns of the same escalating crisis of false doctrine. As people will have those itching ears longing to have Bible teachers, that it is okay to indulge in sinful passions to one degree or another. It's a great spiritual crisis that was prophesied in the Old Testament. You think of Daniel chapter 7 where the dragon is said to wage war against the saints and even for a time prevail. Our Savior himself echoing the words of Daniel will speak of the false Christs and false prophets that will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And then Jesus warns, Behold, I have told you in advance... It's the very reason why when Paul, after spending three years with this fledgling congregation in Ephesus, gives this warning as he is about to leave them for the final time. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in from among you. Not simply fierce wolves from without. False teachers will arise from within, not sparing the flock 
From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. It is a heartbreaking reality. It is a heart-wrenching reality. First John, in his epistle, writes and speaks of a great split that happens in that congregation. And he says, they went out from us for they were not among us. John is addressing the reality of false teaching and wolves in the midst. There are predators. And so the question is, what is there to do? How do you discern a a wolf that is dressed up like your grandmother? How do you discern a wolf in sheep's clothing? I remember when I was uh, in, in graduate school, this was 20 years ago, I remember uh, uh, applying uh, for a history program to, to study under a particular professor that knew about church history more than, than anybody else I'd ever met in my entire life. Most knowledgeable church historian I'd ever met, and yet it was a man who led a life of open, heinous immorality. Things of which I should not even speak of from the pulpit. He claimed to be a believer, yet openly engaged in illicit acts. I remember speaking with my own pastor. I'd, I'd just uh, joined a, uh, it was a PCA, a Presbyterian church, um, and I was really struggling with, uh, what do I make of this guy who, 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 who's really taught me more about uh, the history and, and the life of, of the church, and yet is acting like anything but a believer? I remember my pastor telling me, I actually had lunch with him this past week when I was at home in Florida. I remember he says, Charles, says, you'll not know a tree by his good teaching. You'll know a tree by its fruit. Not by his charisma. Not by its charm. Not by his winsome personality. Not by knowledge. Not by those outer acts of piety. Not by the number of followers of, on Twitter or social media, not by the number of books he sold or the number of speaking engagements at conferences that he participates in. But you will know him. This is our Savior's own words here. You'll be known by his fruit. By the conduct and manner of his life. I think we should recognize that Jesus is not saying anything new here. This is the exact same message that John the Baptist had been preaching and preparing the way of the Lord. As John the Baptist gives those same warnings, bear fruit that leads to repentance. You might not be able to discern a true teacher from a false teacher by the things he says, at least initially. But watch his conduct. Watch his way of life. Paul does the same thing when he writes his first letter to Timothy. And he spends all this time talking about the, the, the qualifications of an office bearer in the church. Be he a minister, an elder, or a deacon. I remember we uh, looked at this in our Sunday school back in the fall. One of the most striking things is he gives out the, the qualifications for leadership in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, as he spends almost no time talking about one's teaching credentials and proficiency and aptitude in being able to teach. It's almost a throwaway line. Rather, the focus on qualification is that of moral rectitude. 
his character, not his charisma, his integrity rather than his intellect, his holiness, not his eloquence. Of course, Paul says, uh, uh, an elder or a pastor, of course, of course he should be apt to teach. That's almost like a side thing. More importantly is the conduct and character of his life. Paul's point there is not that doctrine is unimportant, but rather that the doctrine is, is something like the engine under the hood. Do you want to know if a car's engine is running pop- properly? See how it fares on the road. The whole move and flow of 1 Timothy, Timothy could be summed in this. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. Healthy doctrine leads to healthy living. And so if you look at a person's lifestyle and it is godless, then there is something wrong under the hood. Beware of false prophets. Deuteronomy 13, as we had read a few moments ago, gives the litmus test of a false prophet. Isn't it interesting that Moses gives this particular example of a false prophet who comes with signs and wonders, and he actually performs miraculous signs and wonders. One perhaps, you know, perhaps Moses was thinking of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. When Moses himself comes and says to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Moses begins to perform these signs and wonders that the Lord has authorized him to do, and for the first few of those plagues, the magicians are actually able to replicate the very same thing that Moses was doing. One looks and considers these people who come up and perform all these, these things, and people say, well, he must be a legitimate prophet. Kind of like Little Red Riding Hood. My, what big signs you have. My, what big wonders you have. Look at all the things that you're able to do. And yet Moses in Deuteronomy 13 says, if this false prophet arises and he gives signs and wonders, and those signs and wonders come to pass, and yet... That false prophet then says, hey, let us go serve other gods. He is a false prophet. And the Lord has put him there to test you, determine whether or not you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not listen to him. He is a wolf and lamb's guard. A false prophet, the litmus test for discerning a true from a false prophet is not foundationally, whether or not those signs or wonders come to pass. Of course, Moses says if they don't come to pass, then he's a false prophet, don't listen to him. But even if they do, and then he says, oh, let's go worship other gods, he's failed the test. He is intending to deceive you. And Christ himself warns in all of it discourse that there will be false prophets that arise performing these miraculous signs that will if possible deceive even the, the elect how is it that we are to ensure that we will not be like little red riding hood and devoured by a wolf in grandmother's garb before it is too late the litmus test here that jesus says on two occasions at the end of verse 16 or at the beginning of verse 16 and then the end of verse 20 is this it is by their fruit you will know them 
Here he gives three basic truths. As he uses basic botany, is that the right word? I'm not good at science. He talks about trees and plants and fruit. Very basic images that even people who aren't good at science can understand. The first principle he gives here in verse 17, that there's only two types of trees. There's a good tree and a bad tree. Very easy illustration that I've given over and over again. You know, back in October, my folks bought me two trees, two saplings when we were down uh, in the redwoods. They bought me a little redwood sapling and a little sequoia sampling. I got the same pot of potting soil, two different pots, water them the same, under the same lighting. The redwood tree is growing and flourishing. As David can, can attest, as he has been house-sitting for me this past week, the sequoia is withered and dead. I probably should have tossed it out months ago. But there's really only two options. How interesting it is that both have got the same soil, the same water, the same light, and yet one flourishes while the other dies. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's only two types of trees. There's a good tree and a bad tree. How do you determine which is good and which is bad? Well, it leads us to the second principle you see here in verse 18. That the nature of the fruit reflects the healthiness of the root. If that tree is bearing good fruit, then the root is good. If that tree is bearing bad fruit, then the tree is bad. It is rotten. A good tree with a good root cannot make bad fruit. A bad tree with a bad root is not able to make good fruit. You hear the phrase, remember my grandmother using this phrase before, such and such is a bad apple. It's really getting at what's going on here. The fruit of one's life reflects what's going on in the heart, right? None of us have any type of spectacles that can see what's truly going on in another person's heart. And yet, the fruit gives an indication on what really is going on inside. Right? There's no such thing as a child predator with a heart of gold. The outer fruit is reflective of what's actually going on in the inner heart. Likewise, there is no sheep in wolves' clothing. It's not something you have to worry about. Rather, what we see here is good fruit is the proof of a good root, and rotten fruit is the proof of a rotten root. And it leads to Jesus' third principle. You see that here in verse 19 as he speaks of the fate of the fruited trees. If there is rotten fruit, then it is evidence of a rotten root. Rotten to the core, and therefore the only thing it is good for is to be hacked down and cast into everlasting fire. Here Jesus is preaching the exact same message of John the Baptist. There's a continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in terms of the proclamation of the necessity of repentance. This is not simply a call to an intellectual turnabout. Repentance is more than simply a doctrinal affirmation. It's a call for a change of heart. A repentance that leads to holy living. Holiness is so critical to the Christian life. It's not the grounds for our salvation. But if you are not living a holy life, 
then have you truly trusted in Christ who changes our hearts, who takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, Christ who by his spirit begins to uproot and prune and ensure that our hearts bear fruit to greater and greater degrees of glory. Paul, as he writes to the church of Galatia, makes this great contrast between those who are citizens of heaven, those who are members of the kingdom of God, over and against those who will not inherit the heavenly kingdom. He says, do not be deceived. Those who practice the deeds of the flesh, who bear rotten fruit, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, what are those works of the flesh? He goes on to spell it out in terms of immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sexual immorality, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And notice that the list that Paul gives in Galatians 5 is not exhaustive because he then adds, and things like this. It's not saying that only the perfect will, or that the perfect will make it into heaven. That's not his point. He's talking about consistent character. If you're continually committing adultery or lying or thieving without repentance, no desire to repent, you have no assurance of salvation. And if you think you do, you're kidding yourself. That is the great warning. It's a warning that Jesus himself will build on when we get to next week's passage where there's going to be a lot of people who are terribly surprised on the last day. Where they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things for you? And Jesus' response is, who are you? I don't know you. I never knew you. Those who know Christ and those who are known by Christ, it'll be seen and evident in their lives as it bears fruit unto godliness. Which is the very thing that Paul then begins to say that the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the, the, the fruit, uh, the evidence of the Spirit's work in one's heart consists in these things of love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He reminds us that there's no law in Scripture that prohibits such virtues. These are, in fact, the fruit and evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's life. In fact, reminds us that no fruit apart, no, none of this fruit will happen apart from the work of the Spirit in one's life. And Paul's not getting at, and Christ himself is not getting at a works-based salvation. And yet at the same time, our works, our fruit, it, it's evidence of who it is to whom we truly belong and so the, 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 the question that is put before all of us this morning is, which will it be? I mean, discipleship means a changed life that comes from a changed heart. If you're not trusting in Christ, then you'll never bear fruit. We might be able to deceive those around us. We might be able to put on those outward acts of piety, that theatrical display that Jesus calls hypocrisy. 
but we won't fool Christ. Here, we need to take these things to heart and remind us as we, before we remove the, the, the speck from somebody else's eye, we recognize or consider whether or not there's a log in our own eye. We should re-examine our own lives so that we would not be shocked on the last day to hear our Savior say, I never knew you. Yet the only way to discern the counterfeit is to know the true. How is it that we bear fruit unto righteousness? Our Savior elsewhere speaks of that in John chapter 15, where he says that he is the vine. We are the branches. How is it that we bear fruit? Not by grunting and groaning, not by striving, but by abiding in him. Union and communion with Christ bears fruit unto godliness. The only way that we will bear fruit is if we as the branches are connected to the vine, the source of all life and health. That's the question upon which everything hinges. What do you think of Christ? What do you make of Christ? But as we examine ourselves here, Jesus gives the warning not just to consider ourselves, but to beware of those false teachers around us. When it comes to electing church officers, what is it that we should be looking for? How dangerous it is to have a pastor or an elder or a deacon elected to office solely on the basis of his intellectual knowledge or his, his knowledge of the Bible and not the strength of character. A character that is grounded in reliance on the grace of God that springs up into faith, hope, and love. Again, my point here is not for us to go on a witch hunt. But at the same time, our Savior here is giving us a very sober warning of the very things of which we are to beware of. That the leaders in Christ's church, within the church visible, do lead, and they lead to only one of two destinations. And we must take heed not to follow those who will lead us to certain doom. How do you examine a person? Consider first their conduct of life as the evidence of sound doctrine, trusting in Christ and all that his word proclaims and teaches. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us wisdom as we, as your church, seek um, to heed your warnings. We do pray that you would grow your church, even here in the valley, uh, and that you would give us uh, wisdom in discerning uh, and calling elders who will lead us along the path of righteousness for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.